Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And we are going to be talking today to Jason McNew, who is the CEO of a company called Stronghold Cybersecurity. Jason got quite a background. He is an Air Force veteran who previously worked in the White House Communications Agency at Camp David for 12 years, and he carries what is known as the highest security clearance of Yankee White. So we'll have Jason explain a bit of that to us. But he's here today to talk to us about the threats to manufacturing in the world of cyberspace. So, Jason, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Hey, fellas. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, good to talk to you. There's uh, more than enough to talk about where uh, cyber threats to manufacturing are concerned. <laughs> You're right. About well, your bio is long enough to take up a half-hour radio show in the, in the first place. <laughs> Yeah, as a, as a veteran, I was blessed to have some very interesting experiences, certainly. I'll bet. And, of course, if you tell, they they, they will do away with you, so we won't ask. <laughs> yeah, they'll have to yeah, do away with us. Uh, there's yeah. uh, plenty of things that I, that I can't talk about, sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since you've been a, uh, a spook uh, for so many years? I wouldn't really describe what I did as, as being a spook. There are people that certainly <laughs> fit in that category. Um, but what, what we did was uh, pretty much above the table. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of my career kind of working in these buildings with uh, no windows, surrounded by barbed wire and machine guns and that kind of stuff. And um, what we did was we provided uh, communications to the President of the United States um, which is kind of a zero tolerance for failure environment. Failure is just not an option. And we did this at multiple classification level levels, everything from unclassified to secret to top secret, and then uh, SAPs, which is special access programs, and beyond that. Um, and I worked in a lot of places that are you know, not disclosed to the public and that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't really describe it. It wasn't uh, black operations or spook world or, or anything like that, but it was uh, certainly interesting, and I saw a lot of interesting things. But um, So I spent a lot of time working in, in really high extreme uh, security environments and uh, places where they search you not only on the way in but on the way out too, which is you know makes your day lots of fun. <laughs> So uh, you've taken all of this experience and uh, 12 or 15 years worth of experience, and you've converted it into Stronghold Cybersecurity. Tell us about your company. Uh, Our company is new. We started it last year. We're based out of uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and we serve uh, companies, a lot of manufacturers in particular, um, all over the country. And we do all of our work virtually. Um, our belief is that it's not necessarily uh, not necessary to travel out to the customers in most cases. Uh, when we do that, uh, the cost, you know, to sit on an airplane or a bus or whatever, those costs are always um, passed on to the customers. And uh, we think that it's better, faster, and cheaper to do all of this work remotely. And we found that uh, our customers are highly amenable to this arrangement and um, they really don't. Uh, they really don't care that we're in Gettysburg, and if they're in, you know, California or New York or Florida, 
or Texas or whatever, wherever, um, they're more than happy to work with us. The only thing that they're really interested in is that we can solve their problems for them and secure their networks. That, that makes sense. Uh, what threats, uh, what kind of threats are uh, your customers uh, experiencing or what kind of threats are you trying to cure before they happen? Well, probably the biggest threat to Amer- American manufacturing right now is mostly coming from China. And the reasons for that are, are largely uh, political and, and economic. And uh, China's been interested in Western intellectual property for a long time. And um, if you look at the, the Communist Party of China, they have their five-year plans, which is similar to what they had in the Soviet Union. And on these five-year plans, they have this uh, kind of shopping list of uh, areas of their economy that they want to grow in. And these are things like next-generation IT, biotechnology, uh, aeronautics, uh, uh, agriculture, and, and those sorts of things. Um, so if you work in any of these ten sectors, if you manufacture in any of these sectors that the uh, the uh, China has actively said in their five-year plan that they're interested in, then that makes you a target. And they kind of do these sort of uh, smash-and-grab attacks. Uh, even if uh, your company, you might not think that you're – well, there's a, we have a saying in the cybersecurity company, that, in the cybersecurity community, that uh, you might not be interested in China, but China is interested in you. And uh, even uh, if you don't think they have – even if you don't think you have anything they might want – uh, they'll break in any way, exfiltrate your data, and then they'll just look at it after the fact and then see if, you know, there's anything of value there. And if not, they uh, they might just leave a toehold in your network and then use your network to to attack other networks. So I would say as far as American manufacturers go, the biggest threat is probably China. Um, unless you're talking about uh, defense, when it comes to the defense sector, um, obviously China's interested in that, but there's a lot of other countries that are interested in American defense technology and not just our uh, strategic competitors either. Those would include some countries that are actually our, our allies um, have been known to be committing espionage against us. So we have a bit of a dark world that we're facing nowadays. Uh, some is in the news and some is not. Uh, that, that's very true. A lot of, the, a lot of uh, what goes on never, never sees the light of day. Um, not all... Right. One of the sayings is that your network falls into the, uh, two categories, those that uh, have been breached and those that are going to get breached. And according to all the data that's available, oftentimes when a breach is discovered um, and then they do the forensics and walk everything back, they discover that it's been you know, breached for up to a year in many cases. So they might break in and then leave some type of a back door, and these companies, they might not even realize it for a year. And then there's, you know, the whole issue of reporting requirements. Uh, in most cases, if a company is breached, unless it involves credit card data or Social Security numbers or something like that, they're not required to report that. So um, even if a company is – they're not lawfully required to report it. Um, even if a company is broken into, it, it you know, causes embarrassment. It makes people look bad. Uh, so a lot of times they'll, they'll cover these things up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jason, I'm just curious. Um, we represent the manufacturing world, and those are the folks that we talk to. And I know that their intellectual property uh, covers the gamut from the small guy in the machine shop who's just handed a, you know, just invented a left-handed widget, to the Boeing's and the GE's and the GM's of the world. 
Uh, how much of this is going on? I'm assuming on a, on a daily basis, people are pinging our systems quite actively, trying to break in not just from China, but Russia uh, and probably two dozen other countries from around the world. Is that reasonably accurate? Yeah, I would. Um, one of the analogies, that's definitely true. And one of the analogies that I make is that it's kind of like um, uh, the, the threat actors are kind of like whales um, trolling the ocean, vacuuming up krill, and, and you're the krill. They just vacuum up everything. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's edible, maybe it's not. You know, but anything and everything is a target. And the reason being is that the, the bots, the machines that do the actual reconnaissance and then look for these uh, machines that are vulnerable, they're automated. They don't need human actors in order for those things to run, so they just sweep the, the Internet 24-7, 365. Uh, and in one project that I participated in, we put a, a honeypot, what's known as a honeypot, on the Internet, and it's basically intended uh, to attract uh, hackers to try and hack into it, and it was just tied to uh, just a lone outpost on the internet. It didn't, ha- wasn't tied to a company or anything like that. And we ran it for for 90 days, and uh, over the course of 90 days, it was uh, it was swept 5,000 times per day. So an average unremarkable IP just sitting on the internet, it may get swept up to 5,000 times per day, uh, coming from you know China, Russia, the United States, from from wherever. It's it's uh, unbelievable. So what's the likelihood that you can reduce that kind of activity on the web? doesn't sound like it's very likely. It's just going to continue. No. Uh, people, there's, there's really no way to stop the traffic from coming where it's coming from when it's coming from overseas. I mean, there, there's some right. things that you could do. Um, but mainly uh, you're kind of stuck in reactive mode, so to speak defensive mode so how does the company at least try to get ahead of it uh, jason and our concern always is with the small to mid-sized enterprise that doesn't have an it department that outsources a lot of that and they're faced with gee how do i protect my network from being hacked and you know where do they go you know the local it shop or your shop well the local IT shops, one of the things that makes the tech sector different than uh, the other sectors in the economy is that the tech sector is really not regulated by the government in any meaningful way. And the upside to that is the tech sector, we make everything better, faster, cheaper on a year-over-year basis. You look at what a smartphone does, uh, that's Captain Kirk-level technology. 30 years ago, it would have taken up a city block, and now it costs, you know, 200 bucks, right? Um, now, the downside there is that because we're unregulated, we're not licensed either, right? So if you go to get tattoos or get your hair cut or you go to a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant, um, those people, they're all sanctioned at some level by the government. They have some kind of a license, right? Um, people that work in the tech sector are not licensed by the government. We don't have any kind of a government-sanctioned license or anything like that, right? So the onus is on the consumer or the business owner. Um, that that component of uh, due diligence and due care is on them to decide who's qualified and who's not. And because of this, um, we find that uh, there's professional services companies um, that are starting to get into cybersecurity, so to speak, and they're not really qualified to do it. So if you're going to ask somebody to do security for you, um, you have to do your own research and then ask them what kind of certifications they have, how is it that they're qualified to do security, and kind of vet them on their, on their own. 
Um, I direct people to something that's known as uh, uh, the DOD Directive 8140, which is a, a framework of um, it describes who's qualified to do what in the security place and the security space, and it has three tiers. And I highly suspect that if uh, cybersecurity practitioners ever did become licensed by the government, uh, that, that licensing um, framework would look a lot like DOD 8140. So it, the businesses, they really have to vet us on their own, and they have to be careful about who they do business with. I'm sure that's absolutely true. You know, I, I'd like you to give an explanation to our listeners. I think we have a fairly generic audience. I'm one of those who I've heard the term the dark web. I have no real clue what that means other than there are bad guys out there. You know, what is the dark web, Jason? The dark web, the, now the underlying technology behind the dark web was actually developed by the Naval Research Labs in the 1990s, uh, NRL, um, which is confusing to people. They would wonder, well, why would the NRL develop something like that, right? But you have to um, uh, put yourself, you have to put yourself in, in those times and think about what was going on at that time. Um, the Soviet Union was on everybody's mind at the time, and uh, it, the dark web is kind of like the Internet's version of Radio Free Europe. Do you remember Radio Free Europe? We were broadcasting sure. information uh, across the Berlin Wall, and they're still doing a similar type of thing uh, from South Korea into North Korea. So the, this technology was developed by the NRL as a way for people that live in oppressed areas uh, in order to be able to exfiltrate information and then communicate over the Internet uh, in an anonymous kind of way. And the technology itself is extremely sophisticated, and it uses a series of nodes that come and go um, and specialized software, and they work off of these command and control servers. And basically what it does is it builds these paths dynamically between you and then some website that can be anywhere in order for you to uh, to uh, connect to these to these resources. So the dark web was designed by good guys to do good things, but bad guys quickly found out that they could use it to uh, uh, to conduct crime, you know, criminal activities at the same time. And there's been some argument right now that the most common one is called Tor, the Onion Router. Uh, and there's other ones out there besides Tor. That's not the only one. And, and there's been some argument, well, um, the, the 501c3 that runs Tor, why don't we just, uh, um, you know, issue a, a, you know, for them to shut down. But the problem is, is that uh, the Tor source code, is, it's open source, um, so it's already freely available, and the technology can't be uninvented. So even if you were to take Tor down, there would be other dark webs that would, <clears throat> excuse me, would just replace it. And there's other unknown dark webs out there. So the dark web is a way for you to connect to a website somewhere in a way that makes it impossible to find and then trace the traffic from end to end like you can on the regular Internet, which we call the clear net. Uh, but you could go on to the dark web and you could buy drugs and guns, and counterfeit money, credit card numbers, identities, all kinds of other things. And the people that sell this stuff have developed extremely sophisticated methods of shipping it to you in ways that are difficult to detect, and they could get things through customs. And then you pay you know, for these things with bitcoins, and there's this whole underground economy based on it. And uh, some of the criminals that are involved with this are making very strong earnings, millions of dollars. Uh, Jason, when you're dealing with a manufacturer, and I don't know – 
Are you dealing mainly with small to medium or medium or large corporations? All three. Um, I've dealt with, oh. uh, in one case, I dealt with a manufacturer that was one guy with some CNC stuff um, making uh, some specialized airplane parts for either Boeing or Lockheed Martin or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he was a, he was a DOD supplier, so he had to be compliant with the security framework. Um, up to mom and pop size shops, and I've also worked with um, uh, global defense contractors that have locations in you know several countries. So really, uh, any size manufacturer I've worked with. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. Excellence. It's what separates good companies from average ones. This year's theme for the AME International Conference in San Diego is Create Waves of Excellence. Gain insights from keynote speakers, including innovation expert Jeremy Gucci, former NFL quarterback Joe Theismann, lean author and researcher Mike Rother, and leadership pro Liz Weissman. Witness operational excellence in person at Plant Tours from San Diego's diverse, innovative manufacturing community. Don't miss the opportunity to accelerate your journey toward excellence this fall in San Diego. Visit ame.org slash San Diego for more information and to register. We look forward to seeing you in San Diego. To all of you listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio, I would like to point out to you that June 12 through 14 at the Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York, there is a show coming up. It is six leading shows packed into one powerful event. It's the East Coast's largest advanced design and manufacturing event. If you are looking for solutions to today's problems, you can connect with more than 9,000 engineers and executives with 750 or more leading suppliers across advanced design and manufacturing in one end-to-end experience. This is a fabulous show at the Jacob Javits Convention Center. You can uncover the solutions, innovations, and inspiration you need to solve your toughest challenges. We encourage everybody Just put it on their calendar, June 12 through 14, coming up at the Jacob Javits Convention Center, the East Coast's largest advanced design and manufacturing event put together by UBM. And there are six organizations involved in it. So go to mfgtalkradio.com, click on the banner ad. You'll go over to a page that explains everything about the show. And we hope that you are there and enjoy an excellent experience in advanced design and manufacturing. Now, back to our discussion here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Okay, so I've been in manufacturing uh, 50 years, and uh, and now with uh, uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio, we're dealing with manufacturers even to a greater extent in terms of uh, discussing with them their uh, issues, their the good, the bad, and the ugly of running a manufacturing business. Um, in, in your world, and when you're talking with a manufacturer, do manufacturers uh, understand the potential risk that they are at? Uh, because what we're finding is that you know manufacturers they're busy from sun up to sundown producing their widgets and uh, nuts and bolts, and uh, they almost don't have time for such things as cybersecurity, even if they know what that is. What is your find on that? 
uh, are people aware of the potential risk to their businesses? Not really. Um, I think that what you're saying is completely accurate. I mean, because at the end of the day, these businesses, they exist because they manufacture some type of a widget, right? And uh, oftentimes they view IT and then especially IT security as, uh, you know, as a cost center. So when you're dealing when you're dealing with cybersecurity practitioners that are very good at what they're doing, the type of language that you're looking for is uh, we don't want to just go into it. The, the objective isn't to go into a business and then install intrusion detection and then security information, event monitoring, and all those things. Those are those are ancillary. The main task is to reduce business risk. The objective of a cybersecurity program is kind of like the objective of your safety program. It's to reduce risk in some way. And uh, when it comes to manufacturers, I often compare um, security to safety, and I, I think that these things should be done in tandem. Um, everybody has a safety manager, and if you cut yourself, you know exactly what to do. Um, and the same should be true for security. If you get a virus on your machine, you should know exactly what to do. I'll unplug it from the network, and then I go get the security manager, you know, whoever that person is, and then we fill out an incident response to, uh, uh, form, and then we, uh, you know, we up-channel from there. So I think that um, it makes sense for manufacturers to uh, look at um, security as being a lot like safety and to train their people and to have posters and have a culture of security in their business. So when you are reaching out to the manufacturing sector, how do you get your message across to them that they are at significant risk? And uh, how do you explain that to them? How do you get them to understand uh, the potential uh, loss? Most of the companies that I deal with are actually required to have a cybersecurity framework because uh, they fall somewhere in the DOD supply chain. And um, I'm sure that you guys may have heard of uh, NIST, uh, National Institute for Technology, 800-171. And there are literally thousands of uh, manufacturers of all sizes in the country that are required uh, to, um, that are required to comply with that. So um, I kind of put it this way. I don't really sell security per se, because as you point out yourself, that's an extremely difficult thing to do because it's a cost center. Um, If I go to a manufacturer and I'm trying to sell them an IDS, an intrusion detection system, their eyes are going to glaze over. They're just not going to be interested in that uh, unless I spend Mm -hmm. three weeks scaring the crap out of them, which I'm not going (laughs) to do that. So um, we cater to businesses. uh, uh, We market to businesses that need to be compliant with some type of a security framework whether it's HIPAA or PCI or NIST or FINRA or FFIEC or any of these other things. And then we help them meet these requirements in a way that uh, helps them to reduce their business risk and save them money. Uh, Just a moment or so ago, you mentioned NIST 800-171. Tell us a little bit about that. Maybe this is a way to educate some of the uneducated or uninformed, I should say. The... um what drove NIST 800-171 is, uh, was a desire for the Department of Defense to um, protect their supply chain. Because what they were finding is that uh, China and some other countries are breaking into the manufacturers, they're exfiltrating the designs, and then counterfeit parts are showing up in the supply chain. Or China has information about, you know, China and Russia and Iran, whoever has information about defense-related manufacturing that we don't want them to have. 
Now the problem is, is you have, of course, you have the big, you know, manufacturers Lockheed Martin and Boeing and uh, General Dynamics and so on and so forth. But the supply chain goes, you know, four, five, six, seven levels deep. You have all these subcontractors, and uh, protecting the entire supply chain is was a big task for them. So they came up with this framework, and it's not just the DoD, by the way. Um, 8170, or not 8170, 800-171 also covers uh, NASA and uh, the the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation. So they came up with this cybersecurity framework. And there's uh, 110 controls uh, that spread over 14, sec- uh, 14 sections that are intended to reduce cyber risk in kind of a holistic way. And it, it's not just IT controls. It also talks about uh, physical security, you know, uh, facility monitoring and alarm, personnel security, doing background checks, human resources, operations, configuration management, uh, and, a, and a bunch of other things. And overall, it's a, it's an excellent framework, and they did a very good job of making it comprehensive and doing a lot to reduce business risk, but not making it so crushing that, you know, your small and mid-sized manufacturers, um, they didn't want to put an undue burden on them. Um, if you try to secure a manufacturer in the same way that we secure, for example, an Air Force network, um, you would just drive them right out of business. So. This uh, framework uh, does a very good job of balancing, um, reducing cyber risk while at the same time not being insanely expensive. I mean, it's not cheap and it's not easy, but it's not, it's not ridiculous. Well, that's good because ISO 9000 has become expensive and a little over the top in terms of things that they make you do. Uh, I presume you're, you're aware of ISO. I, I am. And, um, a lot of times what I'll tell manufacturers is, um, I, you know, when we're, when we're rolling this out, I still realize this is a pain and year one is a pain and there's a lot to do. But let me ask you this. If you could abandon ISO tomorrow, would you do it? And they say, well, no, of course not. We wouldn't do that. And I tell them in, in three years you're going to feel the same way about the cybersecurity framework. You're gonna, you'll really see the value in it. And, um, and I'll, I'll have to add that with uh, SMB, small to mid-sized businesses, they're always very um, uh, concerned about business valuation and the bottom line. And uh, mature business processes like ISO and NIST 800-171, when you implement mature business processes in your business, they literally improve uh, the saleability and the value of your business. So if you're ISO compliant, that's great. But then uh, if you could also say that you're compliant with NIST 800-171 as well, then that makes your business more valuable in the marketplace. I would think it would also help you bring in new business. That's definitely true. Yes. So there's Jason. Um, I'm just there's a there's a silver lining to that cloud, definitely. Uh, Jason, I'm just curious whether or not either of these standards have incorporated or are beginning to address blockchain in their framework. Okay. No, definitely. And isn't definitely blockchain not. really isn't blockchain really designed to help uh, squeeze out uh, counterfeit product in the supply chain? It could. Uh, blockchain is a distributed, by definition, is a distributed ledger um, that's mathematically and cryptographically secure. And uh, it, it certainly has the capability to do something like that. But um, right now, they're just trying to get manufacturers to put in some reasonable amount of security. Uh, that might be the next peak to scale. Uh, but they're not—they're not doing that right now. No. 
Now, there's another piece or another component out there that we often hear about on the news, and some companies get hung up with it, and we're not quite sure how it gets resolved, called ransomware. Is ransomware still as rampant as it used to be, or is it getting worse, or is it fading? It's getting worse because it's a good moneymaker. Um, <laughs> it is. It makes, it makes no ransomware overhead. makes tons of money. And uh, the the source of the ransomware problem is, is, is kind of complex. A lot of that stuff comes out of uh, Eastern Europe and, and Russia. And the thing you have to realize is that for all of its failings, the public education in the communist bloc was actually pretty good, right? And um, there was a lot of emphasis on what we now call STEM. And as a result of that, they've created a lot of uh, people with advanced technical skills, really good software engineers come out of that part of the world, but there's not a lot of economic opportunity. So they take these skills that they have and they parlay them into something that is cash flow positive that might not necessarily be legal. Um, ransomware is a great way to make money. And if you set up a ransomware shop in you know, Belarus or Latvia or something like that, and then you're targeting Americans, the local authorities are not going to bother you because they have uh, enough other problems to deal with. And uh, ransomware is a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, and I call it an industry. It goes way beyond uh, organized crime because it's actually very, um, very organized. And the people that are doing it know exactly what they're doing. They're well-educated. They're organized. They have process. Uh, and the, this whole idea that, you know, if you were to Google hacker, and then look at images, you see a person in a hoodie or whatever, and it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, it's a ridiculous visual because it's just not accurate at all. Um, the ransomware industry behaves like real businesses. They have engineers and project managers and all these other things. It's just that the line of business that they're in, so to speak, is unlawful. It's, it's a big problem, and it's, um, as long as they're able to make money doing it, they're going to keep doing it. Do, do they know they're criminals? Or are oh, they yeah. being misled? They do know. They all know. The people that are running it do. I suppose that some of the engineers and the low-level employees that are actually developing the software may not right. know. Um, and then the other thing you have to consider, too, in some countries, uh, there's not a whole lot of shoulder room between organized crime and the state security services. So that I suspect <laughs> some of the more um, uh, advanced malware might actually originate with the state security services. Because some of this stuff is so sophisticated, it's kind of freaky, and it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, people that don't have the backing of some state security service aren't making it. The ransomware issue, is that at all protected, uh, for example, by NIST 800? And is there anything that can save you from this, or is well, it just luck of the draw? It's not luck of the draw, um, and, and you, what you're pointing out actually is one of the holes in this 800-171. If you implement a cybersecurity framework like 800-171, uh, the chances of contracting ransomware um, definitely are, are much less. But one of the things that NIST 800-171 does not address in any way is, is BDR, which is backup and disaster recovery. It doesn't have any kind of a requirement for that at all. And uh, small to mid-sized businesses and manufacturers should definitely have a BDR solution in place because if you do get ransomware and then all of your um, production, your production environment and your data gets encrypted and gets destroyed, so to speak, um, you need to have a backup of that stuff off-site just in case it happens anyway, which it, it definitely can. 
Uh, Jason, I'm just wondering how many instances you run across or hear of legitimate instances where manufacturers have really been taken down by this kind of thing. Uh, I've heard of several, but it's not information that I can share directly out. I apologize. That's all right. I've, That's I've, all right. I've, I've I, definitely, just... I definitely have information on that, but um, I, I can't share information about companies' breaches um, due to my um, NDAs that are in place. But, yes, it definitely happens. Right. No problem. So no it's, problem. it's happening uh, commonly to manufacturers in the marketplace. Is that accurate? I wouldn't say that the incidence of it happening to manufacturers is higher or lower than any other sector. But um, you look at, like, uh, what just happened at the city of Atlanta, for example. Um, they had they mm-hmm. had a... You know, I mean, and that's the municipal government. They had a significant breach, and apparently their BDR does not work properly, and they're still down. Um, I wouldn't say it's any more or less than any any of the other sectors, though. I I, I don't think so. But everybody. Yeah, just before I just before I left, I was reading an article in the paper where people are showing up to clear their outstanding warrants or a traffic ticket, and court the court system is shut down. The court system in Atlanta is shut down, and they're trying to reschedule appointments out in the future as they try to clean up the mess. But it was a crippling blow to the city of Atlanta, no question. Yeah, that that one was pretty bad, and I would have to uh, imagine or at least hope that some people are being called onto the carpet for that one. Um, although in some cases we find that um, – uh, the IT people are crying for security budget, and their leadership won't give it to them. Let's say, for example, you keep demanding you're an IT person, and you'll keep demanding funding for a BDR, and then uh, they keep denying it. Then, you know, who's at fault there? Is it the leadership or is it the IT people? I can't speak specifically to that uh, uh, situation there, but I hear that a lot where IT uh, actively identifies, we have this problem, we need funding, give us money. Leadership says no, and then a bad thing happens, and then it's a big blame game. Yeah, that's pretty common. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, the troops on the ground were asking for salt for the roadways. The leadership said, no, we don't need salt in Atlanta. Then they had snowmageddon that shut the city down for a week. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it can be yeah, pretty that's, painful. Yeah, that's a when perfect it, analogy. It can be pretty fam- painful when it hits. Uh, Cybercrime. Uh, Jason, it's so it's become so broad, it's almost hard to define cybercrime these days, is it not? That, that's definitely true because you have to realize that the laws don't keep pace with the technology. Uh, back in the 80s or the 90s when um, hacking over the Internet started to begin – um, and it got dragged in front of a judge. The judges wouldn't do anything as they said, this does not meet the definition of breaking and entering, B&E. They said this is not B&E. So the, the technology and the threats are evolving faster. The legal system is slow, right? Um, uh, they're evolving much faster than the legal system's ability to deal with it. And that's true not only at uh, a local level and a national level, but also an international level. Um, there's a lot of back and forth with the uh, International Law Act, Law of Armed Conflict, over what constitutes an act of war where it comes to cyber warfare or not. For example, if you attacked another nation state and then took out their grids, you know, I mean, uh, shut their electricity off, is that an act of war, right? And uh, even that definition doesn't exist yet. So you're definitely correct. Um, and uh, the source of that problem is that the technology and the threats are evolving much faster. Uh, than the legal community's abil- ability to deal with it. 
And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. No, I think we're going to really struggle. Jason, what's the threat to things like the national power grid or the northeast power grid, for example? Uh, there's there's a number of threats. Um, they're significant, and they're not only man-made threats, but there's also national threats to it. Um, you may have heard of the Shield Act, which is uh, a, an act that's been sitting around in Congress for years to harden the infrastructure, and it's um, by national standards a nominal amount of money. Um, the grids are vulnerable for a couple of reasons. Um, natu- from a natural perspective, if you've ever heard of uh, the Carrington event, that was in 1869. It was a coronal mass ejection, uh, and the sun burped out so much ionized crap, um, and the earth happened to be in the way. It set telegraph wires on fire and killed a couple of people, um, and that was in 1869. If we were to have a repeat of the Carrington event now, then uh, the grids would go down. Um, the grids could be attacked by an electromagnetic pulse weapon, um, which doesn't really destroy people or infrastructure. It just puts out so much uh, ionization that it'll destroy the grids. And then uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and a bunch of other uh, co- uh, countries are very interested in our grids. Um, and if we were to get into uh, a war with China over Taiwan or something like that, um, they're not going to battle the U.S. 7th Fleet in the Pacific Ocean. That would be insane. They would lose. Um, they're going to shut off our grids and attack the ACH system and shut down water and stuff like that. This is, uh, you know, in ancient terms known as asymmetric warfare, uh, Sun Tzu type of stuff. Those, those threats are, um, uh, I'm sorry to say, very real. So we just got in our budget $1.7 trillion, is it, for the defense uh, spending? And maybe we're spending the money on the wrong things? And we're building battleships instead of building uh, infrastructure security. Wow. Um, scary stuff. Yeah, well, you made my day. I'm, yeah. I'm nice, cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> Sorry to this get is, too uh, tinfoil hatty, but... Um, that's, you know, I used to, uh, I used to work in environments where people would sit around and then think up the worst thing possible that could happen and then think up plans for that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? And, uh, over a period of years, you become aware of all these, you know, weird things that can happen, you know? Well, that's what you call thinking ahead. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Jason, as we wrap up this segment, and we certainly appreciate uh, Stronghold Cybersecurity being out there. Anything else that you want to kind of in general share with our listeners about cybersecurity and, you know, where their heads should be at at this point in time, since it's very, very real? And by the way, give us your URL so those who are scared to death will contact you. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll throw out a, a quick uh, elevator pitch then, right? Um, our website is www.strongholdcybersecurity.com. And uh, I'm going to go back to the dark web thing real quick since we were talking about that. Um, we have uh, a tool that uh, we can search for information on the dark web for manufacturers and other small to mid-sized business customers. Um, And if you go to our website and then slash dark web, uh, there's a form there. And we find that about one in three uh, companies that contact us have some form of information on the dark web, uh, usernames, uh, email addresses, passwords, those those sorts of things. 
uh, you know, one out of three employer email addresses and company passwords are on the dark web is, is what we find. Um, it's a, a really, really interesting. It's just shocking amount of information out there. It clearly is, and uh, it's got to be uh, a great concern, and it should be in the minds of everybody, and certainly since we serve the manufacturing sector, uh, they and I know they're aware of it, but I guess everyone's going to have to get a whole lot more proactive with it. Jason, thank you for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio with Lou and I. And, Jason, I would also like to say if anything in the future comes up, uh, new developments or new fears or new uh, bad things, if you feel like sharing it with us, uh, please give us a contact, and we'd love to have you back. Sure. I'm, uh, if uh, you can't tell, it's uh, subject material I'm very passionate about, and I always enjoy talking about it. Excellent. Excellent. We love people you must who are be, passionate. You must be fun at parties. <laughs> well, I think you just have to watch which rabbit hole you go down, because then you start to get weird looks, you know. But uh, <laughs> all I'm relaying are the facts as I understand them, you know. Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show, and uh Jim? We'll talk to you again soon, Jason, again. Thank you for being with us. We've been speaking with Jason McNew, who is the CEO of uh, Stronghold Cybersecurity. You're talking to us on all kinds of subjects that have to do with uh, security for the manufacturing industry, which is our passion here at Manufacturing Talk Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, it is at mfgtalkradio.com. It's within our library of past shows, and we'll... Uh, We'll post that because all of our shows we keep forever so that you can go back and find a subject that you were interested in and see what we've got there. Also, go to another one of our websites, which is womenandmfg.com. That's our women in manufacturing show we affectionately call WAM, and listen to some of the great information that's shared there. We always appreciate everyone who's a listener, whether they listen live or they listen as a podcast and download it for their listening convenience. Thanks again for being with us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.